Hello, this is Dr. Mike Barnett with the First Baptist Church of Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Thank you so very much for tuning in to our podcast, and I pray that today's message will be a blessing and an encouragement to you. We are engaging our people at First Baptist Church in an emphasis called Who's Your Mission? It is a challenge to personal soul winning and personal evangelism for the year 2023. We've asked our people to ask God for at least one soul to be burdened for that they might go after that soul and win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the theme of these current messages. And I pray that they will encourage you to be a soul winner and go after one soul that needs to be saved now and to know Jesus now. I pray these messages will help you. And again, thank you for tuning in. for getting us to the cross this morning. That's where we need to be. That's where David needed to be. If you have your Bibles, I invite you once again to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 12 as we continue to journey through this book of the Bible, this historical book of the Bible where we have been watching David and observing David and learning from David. We are in some dark days for our beloved sweet singer of Israel. But today, he's going to get better. God's going to do a work for him. God's going to restore him. And we're going to see that event uh, today. Let us begin by going back, though, just a little bit to chapter 11, verse 26. And uh, just to give you a a rehearsal, uh, David had grievously sinned. He began with sins of omission. He didn't put on his armor and go to battle. He stayed at home in the recliner and walked out on the porch and look, became a lust. And lust became more sinful, and we saw how that developed, and we saw how David sought to cover it up. As a matter of fact, in this section of 2 Samuel, we're we're calling these these messages, uh, a man after God's own heart committing sin. We saw that in chapter 11. And then we saw a man after God's own heart covering sin. Today, we're going to see a man after God's own heart confessing his sin. But I need to show you something. Remember, David tried to cover it up, and he, he took seven steps. If you didn't hear that message from last week, go back to YouTube. It's free. You can watch it. Seven, you want to cover up your sin? We give you seven steps, seven stages to covering up your sin. And David did them all. And read what happens in verse, let's say... Verse 26 of chapter 11. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her, house, her husband. 
And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So David thinks he has it made. Nobody's going to know, just very few people. I will know. Joab knows, Bathsheba knows, Joab knows, but he's not going to talk. As a matter of fact, Joab likes it because now David has nothing on him. Bathsheba's not going to talk. Those servants that did David's bidding, they're not going to talk. They're servants. If they talk, they'll be kicked out and done away with, whatever the case may be. So David has covered it up, and he is successful. No one's talking. I got it made. And by the way, just because David fixed it up doesn't mean the sin's been dealt with. Don't ever think that just because you change your circumstances and you, that your sin is dealt with. There has to be a dealing with it. There has to be a God appointment. God has to do a work. And so David believes he has it made, but in the last verse, the last phrase of the last verse of chapter 11, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then between chapter 11 and verse 12, or chapter 12, there's about a year that goes on. About a year. And this is a tragic time. The Bible says the thing displeased the Lord. That word displeased is an interesting word. It it's, comes from the Hebrew word for I. For I. And what it means to, in our text is it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David said... I fixed it. I'm marrying her. Bathsheba said, okay, I'm married to him now. Uh, the servant said, well, we'll just ignore it. Joab said, I got David where I want him. It was fixed up. Everything looked good, but it was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God did not openly move for about a year. And it's very telling. What is going on in this year. What is going on? Well, I think it's very telling there's a lot not going on. First of all, David is not fighting any battles. There's no victories being won. He's not advancing the kingdom like he had done before in, in chapters 10 and 9. There's no victories being won. Uh, David is not fellowshipping with Nathan the prophet. As a matter of fact, Nathan is nowhere to be found for a while. You know, when you're harboring sin in your heart, the last thing you want is to have coffee with the preacher. Especially Nathan. And so Nathan's not coming into the temple and declaring the word of God. There's no worship like we saw in chapter 7 where David goes to the tabernacle and just falls down in the presence of God and, and says, God, you have done so much for me and, 
and it's incredible. You are a wonderful God. David is not writing any psalms. I'm so thankful that this period in David's life only lasted a year because if, if it lasted longer than a year, the book of Psalms would only be about 10 chapters, not 150. So there's not, nothing going on in terms of worship or spiritual warfare. David is defeated and he's down. But in his heart, in his heart, and in his mind, and in his memory, and in his family, relationships, and interactions, he is struggling and he is suffering. And so the first thing we want to talk about is that chastisement that he's under in this almost or about a year. God is not talking out loud for a year. And then we see, and we're seeing his chastisement. After David came to repentance, after he repented of this sin and received the forgiveness of God, um, he begins to write again. He begins to write some psalms. God begins to bless. And David begins to pen the Word of God. And there's two psalms that namely deal with this period of time between verse 27 of chapter 11 and verse 1 of chapter 12. You want to know what was going on in David's heart, you need to read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Let me read a portion to you. Now, remember this. Uh, it all seems well. I, I, I'm sure there's some tension in the castle. I mean, Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, is still his counselor. And uh, Bathsheba is pregnant for much of that year. And David's servants, no doubt, are whispering. You, you know, they'll, they'll whisper. And there's a lot of things going on. I'm sure there's some tension going on, but inside David's heart is where the real turmoil is, and it's affecting him. Let me read to you. This is from Psalm 32, 3 through 4. Now, mind you, David wrote this after, sometime after verse 13. David wrote these psalms. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roar all day long. For day and night, thy hand, he's talking to the Lord, your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. And so he was experiencing the heavy hand of God for almost a year. He was suffering physically. Dehydration. He was sick. And then Psalm 51, this is what he said. And you remember, he's describing what's going on in this year. Make me to hear joy and gladness. I can't even enjoy the songs of the Lord anymore. When I bring in the sons of Asaph, the Levitical singers, I can't enjoy it. I, I, I'm not blessed in worship anymore. The songs of joy and gladness 
are sung, but I do not hear them. It'd be like sitting through this morning's song service when we sang about the cross and your heart was not warmed. Something is amiss in you. Not in the theology that we just sang about. Because if that doesn't warm your heart, your wood's wet. Amen. That's good preaching whether you like it or not. David says, make me to hear joy and gladness. He's reminiscing now. He's, he's writing about when he was in this unforgiven state, this unreconciled state. That the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out mine iniquities. Cast me not away from thy presence. He said, Lord, it was as if I was so far away from you, so distant away. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, that's one prayer that a New Testament Christian does not need to pray. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon his people for a particular purpose and a particular time. But in the New Testament, when you are saved, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so David prayed, Lord, don't remove your spirit from me. He's thinking about when Saul messed up and how God removed his spirit from Saul and Saul collapsed. He's saying, Lord, don't do that to me. I sure thought for that year, God, you were going to do that to me. But today we pray, Lord, let me be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me not quench the Holy Spirit's work and purpose for me. And so David says, remove not thy spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Give me confidence once again, Lord, that I'm in your hands and you uphold me. Cast away these doubts. He was in doubt. He was in defeat. He had no joy of his salvation. Now, may I remind you, David was not a pagan, idol-worshiping king. He was not the Moabite king that worshiped the god of Moloch and brought his babies to be burned in the fire. He was not the Philistine who worshipped the, the, the god of Dagon that was a half fish and half man. Just That's just weird. He wasn't a weird king. This was a man who happened to be king, but before he was king, he was a man after God's own heart. This, this would be somebody who knows Jesus. This would be somebody who's saved and who's redeemed. And sin, they yielded to sin, and for about a year, they haven't dealt with it. They haven't confessed it to God. They hadn't got right with their heavenly Father, and they're estranged, and they don't have the joy of their salvation. And therefore, he is under the chastising hand of God. And that's where Christians will find themselves in when they sin and they harbor it, especially after they harbor it in their heart. And folks, this was about a year. And we need to remember that. So can a Christian stay? Can a Christian sin? Yes. 
Can a Christian stay in sin for some time? Yes. Can a Christian sin and stay in some time and fix it up to where nobody else knows? By the way, that was his plan. He didn't want anybody else to know. But God knew. Let me, let me, you know, he didn't, he didn't want people to say be what, what people said. He, he, he didn't want to worry what people said. But let me tell you something, folks. It doesn't matter what people say or know. It matters what God says and knows, right? And uh, David knew that. And uh, he didn't have the joy and the blessings of his father. He was under chastisement. Now listen to this. This is from the book of Hebrews. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as unto children. God says, don't forget I'm talking to you like you're one of my children. My son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't faint when he rebukes you. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every child, every son that he receives. If you endure chastening, if you experience it when you have sin in your heart and life, if you are experiencing chastening, God is dealing with you as with a son, the receiver of his inheritance, his children. For what son is he of whom the father chastens not? Don't let today's parenting style confuse you. God chastens his children. That's what it says. Let me read on. This is King James Version. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, every child of God, no exceptions, every child of God is chastised, especially when they yield to sin and want to stay in it and not, and not confess it and not deal with it. He said... But if you be without chastisement, which every child of God is, is they, they partake of it, you are bastards. That's the word of God. I'm glad we have children's church. But that's the word of God. And not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. I don't know about you, but I had a father who corrected my brother and sister and me. Amen. I had one, I have one of those old-fashioned daddies. Amen. I mean, uh, if you know what I'm talking about when I say that, raise your hand. Is that enough said? You know, uh, not abusive, just old-fashioned. Not abusive. But he says, we have had fathers who have corrected us. Our, our physical, biological parents, our mamas and daddies. 
They corrected us. I love oak trees, but I hate oleander twigs. Amen. You know what I'm talking about? Glory to God. He says, Therefore shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father's spirits and live? For they chastised us after their own pleasure for our profit. They, they hated to discipline us, but it, they wanted us to be, that they, they, they want us to do right. And God says, I'm chastising you because I want you to partake of my holiness. And for that whole year, David was under the chastening hand of God, according to Psalm 34, 32. And his bones were affected. Physically, he was affected. Spiritually, emotionally, he was affected. The chastening brought on physical distress. It brought on great lack of joy. He wrote no songs. He was happier when Saul was trying to kill him than he was in this year. Circumstances don't mean anything when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's, you have the joy of the Lord, and it's your strength. He, he was filled with doubt. That's why he didn't go to battle. He was filled with doubt. I don't know if I could win. Whereas before, God would say, go. And he'd go and he'd win. He's filled with doubt. He was filled with discouragement. This is what happens when a child of God falls into sin and seeks to cover it up. David kept silent for a whole year with his internal groaning under the chastisement of God. That is no way to live, no way for you to live. But God, after about a year, he changed from speaking to David on the inside to speaking on the outside. And we see from the chastisement, we go to the second thing, the confrontation. Let me read to you the confrontation. And the Lord sent Nathan. There he is. There's the preacher. David didn't invite him over. He just showed up. God said, go to, go to the palace. I'm not invited. God says, I'll tear down that palace. It's mine. You go. And David, Nathan, the prophet, went. The preacher just showed up on the front porch. Hide the beer cans. Put out the cigarettes. Here comes Nathan the prophet. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children, it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Any pet lovers in here? 
And there came a traveler unto the rich man. And he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But instead he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was to come to him. That's the story Nathan told him. That's the parable Nathan told him. And look what happened. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the rich man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said unto David, Thou art the man. David hadn't been in shock like that since he heard Bathsheba say, I am with child. Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. This is Nathan continuing. I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I have gave you your master's house, your master's wives under your bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. I'd have given you a whole lot more if it didn't satisfy you. Wherefore, David, have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite. With the sword, you have taken his wife to be your wife. You have slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord. What a preacher. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine house. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Confrontation. Let, let me encourage you here. We've seen a lot of sending in chapter 11 and 12, haven't we? David sends for Bathsheba. Bathsheba sins for David, I'm with child. David sins for Uriah. He sends Uriah to Bathsheba. He won't go. He sends Uriah to Bathsheba again, this time inebriated. He won't go. He sends a letter to Joab to put Uriah on the front lines, get him dead where I can marry his wife and everything will be settled. He sends for Bathsheba and marries her. Only if David had sent for the Lord when he saw Bathsheba. Let me encourage you and admonish you when temptation has its onset in your brain and in your mind and in your thinking, send for the Lord. The first thing to do in battle 
when, when the enemy is approaching and you see the enemy is to wake up the commander, not try to fight him yourself. Send for the Lord. David didn't do it. But God, after about a year, sends Nathan, this bold preacher. I have a sermon, I might preach it coming up, called David's Favorite Preacher. And I give you the three responsibilities of a preacher. And they're all about Nathan. David receives Nathan. You see, here's the deal, folks. God, he's not going to let you as a Christian go without confrontation. He's going to confront you. Now, usually, he does it upon your temptation. And you have this pull of the Holy Spirit, this conviction of the Holy Spirit that is warring against the flesh. That's Galatians 5. That's where it starts. But if you yield to sin, He convicts your heart. If you're saved, He convicts your heart. The Holy Spirit, you need to get this right. You need to get right with the Lord. You need to confess this sin. It's sin. And, and if you put it off and put it off and put it off, He's going to confront you and confront you and confront you. And then He might even give you a reprieve, but it's not done. And, and you might show up at church on September the 24th, 2023, and get confronted by the bald-headed guy in the pulpit who's preaching the Word of God. But he is going to confront his children because you're his child, and he loves you, and he doesn't want you wayward. He wants you in fellowship with him. But here the Lord does the sending. And the purpose of this confrontation is to restore David to fellowship with the Lord. That's the purpose of confrontation. Nathan is very wise. He knows how to approach David. And he knows David's sense, and he uses parables. You know, Jesus often used parables to confront people's sin. He did it in the New Testament. And there's many parables in the Old Testament. Well, here's one of the classics. And it's interesting that the poor man with one precious lamb, we know, pictures Uriah. And we know that the, the rich man with a whole bunch of sheep pictures David. We know that. But those who like to take parables, and, 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 and you've got to be careful with interpreting parables because uh, they all just have one point, but some people take and make every little thing be a big point. But... One person said, and I kind of like it, so I'm going to share it with you. Who does the visitor represent? If, if the poor man is Uriah, who had just one wife, and David, who had all these wives and was the king and in authority and could have had anything he wanted, why did he have to murder and cheat and steal to get it? it, it that represents David, this rich man. Who does the visitor represent? Sin. It represents sin. It's interesting. Because sin always necessitates death. Always. This sin showed up in this rich man's life. And you know what? The man's lamb was killed. Wasn't there another lamb killed because sin showed up in our life? You see, 
And so this confrontation. Notice David's response. His first response is harsh and hypocritical. You mean to tell me that man who had a hundred ewe lambs took that sweet little ewe lamb pet who those children loved and that man loved, that's all he had, he took it, he's going to die. My sentence is execution, the death penalty. And it was also hypocritical. He imposed an extreme and unjust penalty upon the man. He then came back around and applied the word of God. He said he is going to restore the lamb fourfold. See, it's real easy when one harbors sin in their heart to be harsh toward those who sin. It's really easy. You know, usually the person who has more sin in their heart than anybody else is the one pointing the finger and being harsh and hard. You ever notice that? That's what they did to Jesus. The Pharisees were harsh and hard. David is here. And he, he, he who has a pine tree in his eye is demanding the death of a man who has a toothpick in his eye. That's what harbored sin will do. And then David said, Thou art the man. And he's, he, he doesn't give David an opportunity to speak just right off the bat. He says, thou art the man. David, you're the one who did this. And then you might have noticed he starts talking about how God has blessed David. He says, David, God took you when you were nothing but a, a little shepherd boy, and he anointed you king through Samuel. He protected you for all that time that you were on the run from Saul. He saw to your safety. He gave you an army. He brought people to you. He protected you. And in the end, you won. And God raised you up to be king. And then he says, all of those blessings, look what you have done. You have murdered a man and taken his wife. And then you have despised the commandment of the Lord. That was the chief thing. You, you despised God's commandment. And then in verse 10, Nathan brings up something else. He brings up consequences. Now, as we proceed together in chapter 12, next week, Lord willing, we're going to begin to see these consequences unfold in David's life. David did this in secret, but God says the consequences are going to be open and everybody will see them. Here's the point. Dear friend, you and I can choose to engage in sin and we can also choose to harbor our sin and conceal our sin, but we cannot choose the consequences for our sin. There's two kinds of consequences in David's experience. The first is the divine consequence. God does it. God brings it about. Doesn't have anything to do with forgiveness. God brings it about. And then 
The second kind of consequences, there are natural consequences. These are the consequences of influence on other people. Where did Amnon learn how to treat women? We'll see in chapter 13. Where did Absalom learn that if you want to get something done, just murder somebody? Where did he learn that? Where did that influence come in his life? It wasn't as if David said, Absalom, this is what you need to do, kill him. Nope. But he picked up on some things. You know, our children do not inherit our righteousness. They inherit our sin nature. And there are natural consequences to our influence. There really are. Me and my old buddy got to, into an argument with a younger pastor about what to teach the young people about alcohol. And I finally just came out and said this. Well, you teach what you teach in your church. I'll teach what I teach in mine. Which one of us has a better chance of one of these young people becoming an alcoholic if they listen to their preacher? Amen. Now, if they don't listen to the preacher, that's on y'all. Can I get an Amen. All right. I was talking about from them. <laughs> they listen more than I know. Amen. They're good. I love them. They're great. But there's influential consequences of influence. Now, you might ask me, preacher, verse 13 is so wonderful. Why does God allow consequences for our sin, even though He forgives us and restores us. Why the, are sometimes the consequences so harsh? Well, let me tell you this. There are some sins, different types of sin, that, and you might, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, preacher, sin is sin. Well, let me ask you something. Would you rather me tell you a little white lie, or would you rather me commit arson and burn your house down? I thought you said there's sin is sin. Well, God is a holy God. In those terms, sin is sin. All sin offends God. But I want to tell you something. Some sins have greater consequences than others. And some of the consequences are longer lasting than others. When I pray for my children, I say, Lord, if they, if they sin or make a mistake, may it be mistakes that don't have consequences that last for the rest of their lives. And so there's some, th these consequences to last David for the rest of his life. I mean, adultery and murder, that's, that has some consequences to it. And so you're asking me, why doesn't God just remove the consequences? Isn't that a part of forgiveness? Well, that's not a part of forgiveness. Forgiveness is totally different. But the consequences come. And so why doesn't God just abandon the and not allow the consequences can't that be a part of our reconciliation it's not and so listen to me get this next week i'm going to tell you why there are consequences to a believer's sin but you got to come back next week it's right there in the text you want me to tell you now cindy you want me to tell you now here it is God looked at David 
through Nathan and said, You have given the enemies of God the opportunity to blaspheme. Therefore, the child will die and the sword will never leave your house. The consequences of our sin shows the world God hates sin and you cannot blaspheme his name because I'm judging sin. Sometimes your consequences are not about you. They're about God's name being restored to sinners and to this world. You say, I don't know about that. We'll come back next week. You will. But let me also tell you this. Think about it. When a man of God in the pulpit or a person who is a strong Christian fails morally in a community, what's the first thing people say? Well, I thought, I, look at there, look at that big Christian. Boy, I tell you what, look at that big Christian. The chastisement of God upon us is one thing. The consequences of a man losing his ministry or somebody losing their family, or whatever it costs you because of your sin, shows the world that God is not going to let His name be blasphemed. Amen. We'll talk more about that next week. But I want to get on a positive note. Can I get on a positive note? From the confrontation to the consequences, notice what David says. He doesn't mourn about the consequences. He understands that. We have more problem with the consequences of David's sin than David did. Let's keep that in mind. But notice what he says in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. This is incredible. Even though he would live with the consequences, the sword will be in his family for generations. His walk with God is restored and he has fellowship as a priority with the Lord. And with the contrite heart, David confesses his sin. In Psalm 51, he would write, against thee and thee only have I sinned. The law of death or the law of consequences was upon him but notice what Nathan said. The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Thou shalt not die. He that covers his sin shall not prosper. But whoso confesses his sin and forsakes them shall have mercy. Here is the mercy of God. The Lord also hath put away your sin. Thou shalt not die, David. The law is not going to be meted out on you, David. My mercy is going to be meted out on you. And I am going to forgive and restore and put away your sin. That's it. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, say the same thing, agree with God that it's sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin in the life of the believer is a terrible thing. It, it robs you of your joy. It destroys your witness. It makes you a savorless salt. 
It affects worship. You, you can do all the motions, go through all the motions, but you know you're not honoring the Lord. You know you're not enjoying this. But if you would just respond and agree with the Holy Spirit that you have sin in your heart. That was a sin. It's ongoing or something you've harbored in your heart for a year or longer. And it's sin. And no wonder you don't have any joy. You say, well, preacher, I hadn't had the joy of my Christian life like I used to in a year or two. Well, it's sin. Don't blame Cole or Jay or this or that. It's sin in your heart. And you've harbored sin in your heart. That's what robs you of your joy. Amen? And you confess your sin. And when a believer confesses his sin, the fellowship is restored. I like to use this illustration. You've heard me use it before. I'm going to use it right now. Sin in the life of a believer is like, let's say it's, uh, let's see, what time is it? It's only 1140. Y'all chill out. Let's say it's high noon, which we'll be out of here by high noon. It's high noon. But you walk outside today, and there's a thick, black, dark cloud thundering, and it's just a storm has come in. But it's high noon. Is the sun shining? Yes, it is shining. It's just above the clouds. You can't look at it and, and be blinded by its glory. You can't feel its warmth. You can't, by osmosis, take in the vitamin D that God provides with it. The strength God provides with it. You can't enjoy its brightness. Because there's a cloud cover. Ugly cloud cover. And now I'm, I'm, I'm serious. This is going to sound funny. I'm serious. If you don't get rid of that cloud cover, not only will you not be able to enjoy the sun and see its glory, but you might get struck by lightning. John says there is a sin unto death, and it's a believer that continues in their sin despite the wooings of God's gracious, gracious desire for you. But when you confess that sin and you name it, you name it to the Lord. You know what it is. You name it to the Lord. You say, well, preacher, do I need to talk to you about it? Absolutely not. I don't want to know about it. I got my own to deal with. You name it to the Lord. And you say, well, preacher, to, who do I confess to? You confess to the Lord. And let me tell you this. Your confession needs to be as public as the sin was. If your sin was against somebody else and they know it and, and, and they know it, you need to confess it to the Lord and you need to confess it to that person. And then it's up to them to forgive you. And if they don't, that's their sin, not yours. If it's private, you keep it private. You confess as public as it is public, and you keep it private, as private as it is private. And you confess that sin. 
And God says, I'm faithful and just. I'll blow the cloud cover away, and the sun is bright upon you. Amen. Again. And you can feel its warmth, and you can experience its glory, and you can be lighted by it in the day. And you have its vitamin D. And it's glorious because you've confessed it and you've agreed with God and the cloud cover is gone. And you say, oh God, forgive me for that gossip. Forgive me for that bad attitude. Forgive me for what I said about that preacher last week. Forgive me for my profanity. Forgive me for looking when I shouldn't have looked. Forgive me for not sharing the gospel when I had that opportunity. Forgive me for being stingy. Forgive me for my bad attitude. Forgive me for having to have the last word in my kitchen with my wife. See how happy we are? Oh, what's your sin? You know your sin. And you don't need to tell me about it. You don't need to tell anybody about it but Jesus. You say, well, Jesus knows. He just wants you to agree with him. And he'll clear that cloud cover out. And look what it says. Nathan, that same preacher, said, Thou art the man, said, The Lord has put it away. I love what Paul said in Colossians. He has taken it out of the way. There's no more obstacle between you and fellowship with the Lord. Your relationship is intact, but your fellowship broken with sin, believer. He has put it away. You're not going to die. There's revival in you now. You're not going to die. You say, well, preacher, that seems so easy. Yes, it does. And you know, you say, it just ought to be more complicated than that. Let me tell you why you think that. Because you have a low view of sin. You, you think, or you have, a, I'm sorry, you have a, a low view of sin and you think there is some work you must do. There's some penitence you must do. Well, there is restitution when you can, but I want to tell you what, most of the time, you just need to confess it to God and go to your brother and say, Charlie, I'm sorry I sinned about against you. Forgive me, brother. God's forgiven me and go on. Or you may have a low, a high view of self and there's you're thinking there is something I can do to make it right. I can just balance the scales. But you, you need a high view of our Savior and His righteousness and His grace and His desire to fellowship with His children. And He will when you confess your sin. And so David is now right with God. Look at verse 14, 1, then we're done. How be it? I got an idea. Let's just worry about the how, how be it next week. And today, today the invitation is you come on down if you want to join our church. You come on down if you want to pray with us. You come on down if you want to give your life to Jesus and be saved and not only have fellowship with Him, but have a relationship with Him. And the invitation is this. If you have hidden sin in your heart that you've covered up before everybody else, you know God knows, 
You can confess it right now. You don't have to come forward and tell us about it. You say, well, how will you know we get right with God? Because you'll be a whole lot better to be around. You'll love the Word of God more. You'll be smiling on Sunday morning. Amen. You'll have, you'll have a new uh, spring in your step for Jesus. That's how I know. Amen. You ever look at somebody and say, boy, they must be right with God. A lot of times they are. Renew a right spirit within you. Let's stand for our song of appeal. Father, as uh, we get ready to close out today and sing uh, this song of appeal, this song of invitation, Lord, I'm going to ask you that you would convict Mike Barnett, me, of any hidden un sin, sins that I have put on the back burner and just refuse to listen to you that hinder me. And I don't even know they do. And I pray that for me. Lord, so the pulpit will always have the power of your Holy Spirit. And my walk with you will be joyous and contagious. And Lord, I pray that, that every Christian in this room would stop just right now, quit getting in their mind ready to leave this building, quit worrying about the time, quit, quit being distracted, and would just pray right now, Lord, what is in my heart that you need me to confess and, and you need to forgive so I can have the joy of the Lord, your joy. May every Christian just pray that right now. And Lord, for the sinner that's closest to hell today who doesn't know you as Savior, God, maybe they'd be saved today. You'd convict them of their sin and you would take away their sin so they could be saved from hell and eternity without you and life without you and have a relationship with you and daily fellowship. For your glory and only in Jesus' name, amen. You come as the Spirit leads today. Cole and I will be up front as the Spirit leads. Come on.